Hey everyone, Ian here. Just hopping in here before we get started to let you all know that there will be no episode next week. Uh, my mother-in-law just passed away after a four-year battle with lung cancer, so I'm going to be spending the next week helping my wife and her family with plans and preparations and taking care of our daughter. So, this week's episode was already basically done, so I've gotten it out, but no episode next week. But we will be back on the 20th with the first part of our Beastlands episode. So, fuck cancer and enjoy the show. This episode of Undercommon Taste is sponsored by... Have you ever wanted a dad and his two teenagers to give you a comprehensive breakdown of classes, races, and planes of Dungeons & Dragons 5e? Have you ever wanted those same people to discuss example characters based on the combat, exploration, and social interaction pillars of D&D storytelling? Do you like listening to three chuckleheads make terrible puns and trip over the simplest words? Well then you're in luck! We're the three pillars of D&D cast. And that is exactly what we do. Find us wherever quality podcasts are sold. Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. When you marooned me on that godforsaken spit of land, you forgot one very important thing, mate. I'm Captain Jack Sparrow. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today, we are diving back into Pandemonium and covering the four layers of the realm. Uh, We ran out of time last week, so we decided to split it up into two parts. Otherwise, we would have had a two-hour-long episode. So let's go ahead and without further ado, dive straight in. Before we do dive in, I do want to throw up again. We had a fairly long content warning for the start of the previous episode. That content warning still applies to this episode as well. We will be dealing with madness in various forms, mental illness, perhaps disabilities. So again, the same rules apply. The game's supposed to be fun. Don't be a dick at the table. Yeah, good call. (laughs) All right. So now that we got that out of the way, let's get into the actual layers of Pandemonium. The first layer is Pandesmos. It has the largest caverns and is populated by the most non-petitioner humanoids. Some of the caverns are stated as being large enough to hold entire nations. So whatever scale that happens to be, multiple miles across. Most of the caverns in this first layer are abandoned and desolate, though. You end up having a large number of streams flowing through. Many, but not all, are tributaries of the sticks. So if you ended up coming up to one of these tunnels, like I said, where the river is flowing midair through the middle of the tunnel, you're going to have trouble if you're wanting to get through, because that might be the sticks, and you don't know how long that tunnel is. If you enter that tunnel... You're going to get gravitated up into the center of the tunnel, into the water. And you're going to basically have to swim through what might be the sticks all the way to the end of that tunnel. Another thing you want to bring up with this is because there are so many tributaries of the sticks here, it's not like you're going to walk up and, oh, there's a river stick. So if you're like trying to roll a nature check or survival check, if you roll fairly low, you might not realize that little stream of water is actually 
one of those tributaries. And so now you're going back to that will save or constitution save, depending on what it was for drinking the water from the river sticks, where you're going to lose either 24 hours of memory or your whole memory, depending where you're at, because a lot of this water are these various tributaries. Yeah. So if you're going to play it safe, treat every single bit of water as if it is part of the sticks. Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. (laughs) So in Pandesmos, there is a bleaker citadel called the Madhouse. It was originally an unnamed inn with this walled yard that was used to serve as a waypoint for adventurers. It was a meeting place and temporary shelter to get out of the wind. As it became more frequently used, they started adding on to it in the truly haphazard manner that only creatures of chaos can do. To the point where it is now a sprawling complex with no rhyme or reason devoted to its construction. Have you ever like been downtown in a, like an old historic type city where you've got yes. the weird one-way streets and then the roundabouts and then the yes. dead ends for no reason? It's that place. <laughs> it's the Winchester House. Yeah, it totally is the Winchester House. I love the Winchester House. <laughs> I've, I've been there twice. The first time they, they hyped up all the lore and the second time they're like, eh, she just had no clue what she was doing. But there is a lot of that like wonky, twisty, turny stuff that is so much fun. So the entire inn is located within this one cavern at the heart of this layer. The the cavern itself is half a mile across. And this nameless inn was dubbed the Madhouse by an adventurer who went in and got lost in one of the wings. So whenever they finally found him and he got out, he just referred to it as a Madhouse and it stuck. I like it. And because of the nihilistic nature of the bleakers they didn't put any stock into trying to discourage people from calling it the madhouse to the because really it it doesn't matter yeah to the (laughs) point where now there are actually you know weathered signs hanging up outside that say that it's the madhouse the town is run by matron maris wero her madness is paranoia oh She came to Pandemonium 60 plus years ago to see the glorious madness and never left. When she arrived at the madhouse, it was in complete disarray because the master of the house had departed two years prior on a temporary trip and never returned. So she just started barking orders like she owned the place and the staff, being bleakers, just did what they were told. (laughs) And so... By the time they found out that the people in Sigil hadn't sent her to take over, she'd already established herself as matron of the house. And so they just went with it. I like this. So I could see her paranoia being totally based around this master returning at some point. Oh, yes. Because she's got accustomed to her position of power. So anyone that doesn't immediately agree with her or maybe agrees with her too much, they're obviously working for the master in plotting his return. Well, there are members of the staff, and the staff are the colloquial name given for like the town counselors or the town administrators or bureaucrats or whatever term you want to use. Periodically, they'll joke that the master will be coming back, and she is not best pleased by any of those. I could totally get that, yeah. So the other major NPC here in the Madhouse is someone called Jax Blesgrill who is the purser, so he's the guy in charge of all the coin. His madness is a severe stutter. Just to give you some feel of, you know, what sort of the different madnesses 
in the second edition books, the sort of scope that they cover. So he has been here since before Maris arrived, and he is a very pragmatic individual. He's not real happy about the fact that she just showed up and started running the place. And so he spends a bulk of the town's income on the defenses because it has become this target within the lower plains. So periodically there are going to be denizens from the abyss that come in and try and raid it because it is a stronghold. It has resources for them to take. And so he spends the bulk of the income on shoring up the defenses, you know, building walls, manning the walls. And he usually gets his way because he is so stubborn about it that Maris just doesn't want to fight him over it. I like Jax. <laughs> yeah, Jax, Jax seems like fun. So that is the Madhouse. The other notable location within Pandesmos is Winter's Hall, which is the realm of Loki. Yes, that Loki. Unfortunately, Loki is only ever in presence whenever he has pissed off the other gods in Asgard and so whenever he happens to be in residence, he's in a foul mood. So like every other Tuesday. <laughs> Pretty much. So the, this particular area of the realm is this snowy, blizzard-ridden area with severely hampered visibility. So on top of the normal darkness of the plane, you also have the snow. So I would almost put this as having that winter night look. So where you have just that tiniest little bit of moonlight, but it's reflecting off of everything. Okay. So you can see a little bit of light that is immediately just taken away from you by the fact that the wind is blowing all this snow around. I like it. So it's almost like a winter blizzard or a whiteout. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And it's a permanent winter blizzard. Okay. And the realm is full of wolves of all sizes, from packs of normal-sized wolves on up through dire wolves, winter wolves, wargs, all the way up to lycanthropes. If it can be interpreted as a wolf, it's here. Okay, I'm liking this place so far, except for the cold. I can do without the cold, but whatever. <laughs> right, right. So the Hall of Loki, this winter's hall, is the only real structure in the entire realm. There are no towns here. It's just the hall and the wintry wastes surrounding it. It's this large rough wooden building with smoky hearths and these sleeping alcoves on the sides and a double row of scarred feast tables that run down the center of it. And there are a bunch of giants that live here. Surprise, surprise. If you know your Norse lore, that's where we're going. So anyone who comes to the realm better have either an issue with the Norse pantheon or be able to tell really convincing lies because otherwise they get branded as spies for the Aesir. And the giants love to play games with Aesir spies like pin the pike through the clueless, hearthfire dancing, boulder bowling, and crack the armor. We need to make these games next time we do an off-season homebrew. <laughs> this is on the to-do list. <laughs> they will sometimes make exceptions for particularly amusing bards or scalds. They really like storytellers. Which is a very important lesson in life. If you're ever in yes. trouble and you can make someone laugh, you're going to get off so much easier if you can pull that off. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But because Loki is a trickster god, it's a trickery domain, every bard and thief gains a bonus to their abilities. 
in second edition, it was a plus 10% on all of their success chances. So that would wind up being plus two in third edition. So I would probably say add your proficiency bonus or half your proficiency bonus in fifth edition. You know, I would just go ahead and do a plus two or, you know, treat it as if they're under the bless spell. So they get a D4. They get a okay, D4 perfect. on top Yeah, of that, excellent, yes. And anyone who can escape the notice of the giants is considered worthy of their freedom. That's their MO. If you're good enough to get away, you're good enough to get away. I like it. That is a great rule to have. Yeah. All right. So there are three notable NPCs listed. There's uh, Jarl Starkad the Gnar. His particular madness is fits of uncontrollable singing. I know so many people who could play this one. It'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Then you have Ingrid the Serpent Tongue, Mistress of the Hunt. Her madness is that she's always pacing. Again, that's a subtle one, but I like it because, I mean, you're never really resting. Yeah, I really like that one a lot. So I think, if I recall correctly, Starcad is a cloud giant and Ingrid is a frost giant. Okay. And then there is White Fang, who is the Yef Hound, who is the pack leader of Ingrid's wolf pack. And his madness is that he's always chewing on something. I'm okay with that one too. I like, um, and again, that's, I love that these madnesses, they're not all these over the top. They're just subtle little, yeah, little touches, which I really love. And there's a whole page of suggestions of different madness quirks that you can get in the second edition uh, playing the chaos book. And I really like the fact that this is where Loki comes when he's pissed everyone off. Because as we said at the beginning, the whole plane of pandemonium itself is largely outside of the view of all of the other gods in the D&D pantheon. Like I said, one or two might pop in, but by and large, it's overlooked. And so this is the perfect place for someone to kind of try to hide out and let things blow over. Absolutely. And now White Fang, a couple little details on him. He's got this very frightening, very tough look to him. But if you can talk to him with something like speak with animals, or if you're a druid who can, you know, wild shape into a canine form and talk with him, he's actually a real big softy. Oh, the puppy. And he, and he <laughs> loves to, and he loves to talk with anyone who is capable of talking to him because he, he can't speak any humanoid languages. But if you can speak with animals, he loves to talk. So that takes care of Pandesmos. The second one is Kokaitis. It is also known as the layer of lamentation because the wind blowing on this layer sounds like the cries of funeral mourners. That's why I would suggest that this would be a slightly higher DC on that. Yeah, that's um, kind of a creepy flavor thing. And now it's really neat too. Kokaitis is actually, or Kokaitis is actually the name of the lowest level in Dante's Inferno as well. And in Dante's Inferno, it was a frozen lake. So again, even though we're one of the evil realms, we're still pulling in a lot of that classical lore. And we'll see a couple more pieces, which I think are nice nods to a lot of the geek culture that D&D kind of sprung up from. Yes. So the tunnels in Kokaitis tend to be smaller and twistier, and the wind blowing through them is more shrill because of that. And a lot of the tunnels seem to have been intentionally carved to make the wind sound the way it does. Okay. It's like they intentionally altered the shape of the tunnels in order to get a specific sound sound out of them. 
So in Roman history, there was an execution method. I forget the name of it, but basically they had this giant bronze bull that they would throw a person into and then and lock it up. And they would light a fire under the belly of this bull. And it was designed so that when the person screamed because they were literally being burnt and roasted alive, it would come out of the bull's mouth like it was braying or mooing. So I'm kind of getting that same kind of really morbid visualization from these tunnels here. And there are a lot of aspects in this layer that suggest that there was a race or a deity and their followers at one point setting up shop here that have since died out. Okay. There are lots of elements that suggest that something has been worked here, that there were people living here, and that it has all have fallen into ruin and we'll get into that in a little bit so almost nobody comes to this particular layer of pandemonium so it's a good place for desperados to hide out who are trying to escape from the long arm of the law if you will okay and again yeah that goes back to that it being a hidden area yeah so there are a couple of notable locations within Cocytus. the first is called halder's crag it is a massive jumbled heap of stones Some of them are carved. Some of them are rough stone. It has the appearance of a palace that has collapsed in on itself. And at the pinnacle of the crag, it is illuminated with fairy fire. So if you go up there, invisibility is useless because anything that goes up there gets covered in this faint blue glow. This is one of the few places where you can actually see what the hell's going on. To an extent. To an extent, because you do have the fairy fire. It is a magical light. So this is a magical location. If you go up to the pinnacle of the crag, you can speak one direction to any individual in the multiverse, living or dead, mad or sane, at any point in time of your choice. I love this. And I'm surprised there's not like a huge line of like pilgrims trying to get to this place. Ask the wise men on the mountain the one question, you know. No, because they don't get an answer. It's one way. Oh, okay. It is broadcasting. Gotcha. I could still see a lot of people trying to get here one way or another. And this is definitely a noted location. I mean, if your party's wanting to go somewhere to send a message, maybe an SOS, help us get us out. You probably want to try to get here. Yeah. And it does mention that a lot of the time the messages go disregarded because, you know, you're walking along doing your own thing. And you get this voice in your head telling you a message and then nothing after that. You're going to wonder if you actually heard that or not. Yeah, you're sitting there, you're putting the cup down, like looking in it, like what's in there? (laughs) Yeah. And it is also not infallible. So it could end up getting intercepted. And it does mention that like imps and quasits and mephits are known to intercept these from time to time. Oh my. And it's not like if you get a random message that you're going to, you know, flip a table of soup into Yandala's face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that never happened in any of our campaigns. I don't no, know what you're all. talking about. <laughs> anyway, and it's also purported that whenever you're on the pinnacle, if you can shout the name of a location in Sigil loud enough over the din of the wind, you can instantly teleport yourself out of pandemonium to the spoken location this is a direct rip off of horton here's a who (laughs) you have that one yelp everyone's sitting there looking at that fluff (laughs) but the issue is as far as i can tell no matter how loud you yell you don't actually go anywhere it is a complete fabrication okay just like the who's (laughs) yeah so 
but Hallows Crag is rumored to be the grave of a phoenix god which once ruled the plains and their followers who could travel the plains at will. And so the other gods being jealous of this phoenix because they weren't immortal, but they had the secret of reincarnation. So they were able to reincarnate every time they died because it's a phoenix god, right? And so because they were jealous, they destroyed the god's followers and buried the remnants of its divine spark under what is now the Hallows Crag. Okay, I like that. And I can get behind that. What I really want to see at this point is an official module or something from D&D that is all of the pre-Pantheon gods and rulers and how they mesh. So like you've got these phoenixes, you've got the spell weavers, you've got, they weren't the Yugolos, they were another denizen of the abyss that were kicking around before then. I forget yeah, their names. Yeah, the Oberiths. The Oberiths, yeah. So I mean, we've got four or five factions, fairly sizable, powerful factions that existed before the current pantheon and cosmology that all of these have some sort of weird influence some people say they're the ones that broke the current cosmology or they formed it i would love to see an official module to see how all these interacted before everything like the great before yeah. would be really awesome yeah the obereths the batorians the vati the spell weavers these all Phoenixes, of these primordial yeah. all of these primordial gods yeah yeah that would be awesome But there was an order of mystics calling themselves the Brotherhood of the Phoenix who were trying to dig into the crag to try and retrieve and revive the Phoenix God's body. And you can go into the tunnels that they started. A lot of them are dead ends. Some of them connect back to each other. But whenever you go into it, the walls, whenever you get through the rubble and into some of the worked areas that are actual hallways, they're covered in script of lost alphabets that supposedly spell out these strange psalms and liturgies and these strings of numerals and formulas of unknown provenance. Okay. So I can definitely see that as being a plot point for an adventure. Absolutely. So that's the crag. The next major location within Kokaitis is called the Harmonica. It is this 10-mile diameter spherical cavern that is filled with hundreds of these massive columns. They're like these multi-mile tall stalagmites that have been carved into these towers. And they have all of these different passages through them where the wind, as it passes through, resonates and makes this very loud, cacophonous noise. The vibration from all of these columns resonating in the wind can be filled as earthquake-like tremors up to 20 miles away. Now, I like this a lot. I've been through, you know, a handful of various crystal caverns and stuff like that with stalactite and mites and formations. And they are really neat. And things do echo. I also love they call this place the harmonica. Because if you ever want to try to actually experience the madness of the sound of wind, give a toddler a harmonica. Yes. (laughs) Note to self, give Ian's daughter harmonica. (laughs) I've got two. Oh, really? Yeah. Never really learned how to play them, but I have them. Yeah, I mean that, or, you know, a kid with a kazoo, same thing, those vuvuzelas that they used to have during the World Cup was a big, yeah, exactly, it's just that kind of incessant, not necessarily on-key, but kind of off-key drone, just kind of wants to set your teeth on edge, yeah, that is a Mm -hmm. perfect name. And so, one of the things that suggests that this was a progenitor race that built this is because all of these columns have staircases 
carved into them as they go up, but they are massive giant sized stairs as in each step comes up to the waist of a human being of a normal human sized being. So you're talking, you know, three foot tall steps. Which, right, so, so they're you, literally giant-sized. I mean, it'd be about yes. right for a mountain giant or a storm giant or any kind of... Yeah, no, that... So, so if you had a 20-foot tall... If you had a 20-foot tall individual, that would be a normal scaled-up step height. So you've got that going on. And throughout the entirety of this cave, gravity remains oriented towards the spherical surface on the inside of the cave. So while you're climbing one of these towers, if you are foolish enough to climb one of these towers... You have to uh, be very careful as you're passing by these different openings that are resonating with this sound because the wind passing through there is going to act as a very amplified burst of air. And so you run the risk of getting blown off the side of the tower, in which case you're going to fall off and go straight towards the spherical surface you're going to fall to the bottom of the tower. So imagine you're driving on the freeway and you look over. You notice that spider's just kind of hanging on the edge of your side view mirror. And so you start like going, you're clipping along, you know, at a proper 60, 65, so you're not speeding. And you see that spider and then you're hitting 75, 80, 85. It's kind of like that. <laughs> so the reason why you would want to go here is because it is rumored to be the location of a secret that allows you to travel to other planes without the need for portals, spells, or devices of any kind. I like it. And again, that goes back to that legend and lore that there's a lot of extremely powerful ancient artifacts that are just stashed throughout Pandemonium. And I would almost say that this structure ties back into this phoenix god at Howling Crag. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The two are one and the same, and that the followers of this nameless phoenix god were the individuals who built the harmonica and the gods killed the phoenix god's followers to rob it of power because a god without followers has no power and so once they succeeded in killing off all of their followers it becomes powerless and inert and then they just collapse its temple on top of it that makes perfect sense though i really hate the idea of a nameless phoenix god so let's call him frank okay (laughs) and one of the things that it does mention about the harmonica is that due to the exceptionally strong winds within this chamber it is basically impossible to cast any spells that have verbal or somatic components so basically your wizard is going to be absolutely useless your sorcerer probably can pull things off with with some metamagics but yeah your your sorcerer is kind of screwed And I would also say that this also means that your martial characters are going to be completely useless because if you can't do somatic components, if you can't do your hand gestures to cast a spell, what makes you think that you can swing a sword? I would almost say that your martial characters would probably have to attack with disadvantage. I would imagine the somatic components for the spells are very delicate and precise. Like maybe you have I to could, draw a rune in the air see or that. something like that. So the wind's kind of blowing your hand off. So you can't, you know, I would definitely, precision. yeah, I would definitely say that ranged weapons are right out. Oh yeah. Ranged weapons are just useless. And I would almost say that because of the scale of the wind in here, 
you're not going to have a combat encounter in here because nothing lives in here unless someone is following you in or unless you are following someone else in. I could see that. I could see, honestly, I could see some of the bleakers in here for various reasons. I could see a weird like group of random cult members. Maybe people are trying to generate belief back in Frank the Phoenix God to grant him power. So maybe you have some inert followers or cult members. One thing we haven't mentioned as denizens is you do have a little bit of overlaps of devils and demons that do kind of sprinkle pandemonium a bit again per the name so i could see them in here as well beyond that though i think this area would be absolutely riddled riddled with traps and if you want to have a good trap session or a trap campaign this would be a great place to do that with and the nature of these traps would be to make you lose your footing Oh, just a bunch of grease traps everywhere. That's all that it has to do. Yeah, it'd be a win. It would be grease traps. It'd be frost spells. Yeah, all of those. Very easy. You know, there's a pressure plate that causes this one section of staircase to collapse into a ramp. Something as simple as that. A deadweight or a pendulum that just swing down and kind of knock you off. Oh, yeah. There's the battering ram traps from Skyrim. Yeah, absolutely. Anything that would be under tension that you step on the pressure plate or trip the trip wire and all that tension is released and it just, you know, big league smacks you off the side of the tower. It's a giant rubber band. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Um, I mean, I can definitely see creative use of glyphs and wards with the catapult spell. Yeah, I was I was going to bring that up too. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just because I mean, you're going up the side of this face, you're going headlong into the wind, and then all of a sudden, a five pound rock smacks into the side of you. That's going to be a bad time. Do you know another spell that would be really, really nasty and really simple to do is um, something that causes a fear effect? Mm. So you hit this ward and you oh, yeah. turn and run, and you're just plowing through everybody. Or you don't care which direction you're running and you run off the side or something like that. Or, I mean, you don't care that you're fighting the wind and you just turn around to run and the wind picks you up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can definitely see all of those. Yeah, this like I said, this would be a really fun trap scenario. All right. Now, the last location within Kokaitis is called, and I'm going to try and say this the first time, Hrugekolok. Sure, why not? It is... <laughs> It is the realm of the bugbear god Hrugek. It is this area of honeycombed warren tunnels, and there are these magically heated pools within the tunnels where the bugbears who live here and worship Hrugek raise these pallid, grub-like creatures for food. And they live in these little scattered villages throughout all of these tunnels. It's not really any established towns. It's just these little family clusters throughout. So this would basically be like a smorgasbord for Baby Yoda. (laughs) (laughs) Almost. I mean, yeah, I can totally see these or like weird hot springs. And again, I could see people wanting to like try to come to these heated pools because again, most of Pandemonium is pretty cold. It's not frosty, but it's not warm. It is very much on the cooler side of things. Yeah, And as an effort to discourage visitors... A large number of deadfalls, pits, and ambushes are scattered throughout the Warrens, and they are unusually hard to spot. So you would get a minus 20% penalty in second edition to spot the traps, and the ambushes would get a plus two bonus 
against you that would be on par with disadvantage. Yes, you get dis- yeah. disadvantage on spotting traps, spotting ambushes. So yeah, you'd get disadvantage on your perception and investigation checks to find these traps as you're going through. So again, this is going to be just another good classic trap intensive run throughs which uh you don't see as much anymore at least i've not seen traps kind of got left behind in fifth edition this is not quite tomb of horrors but it could be yes you aren't going to have the gygaxian variety in your traps they're all going to be fairly similar in structure and method because these are bugbears that we're talking about, they are typically portrayed as being a little bit lower intelligence creatures. Right. So they're not going to have the same ingenuity variety. Okay. They're not kobolds. Well, I was about to say, you're going to have a very similar feel to a kobold layer going through here because it is a lot of these different traps. The difference is... Unlike kobolds, the bugbears aren't able to take advantage of their smaller stature and lighter bodies in the construction of their traps. Well, I mean, the kobolds are more intelligent, and they specialize in traps. So, like, with this, I could see a series of traps, but with kobolds, I could see a trap set up that you would notice, so you don't notice the trap directly behind it, or the trap that triggers when you disarm the first trap. Absolutely, yeah. So the largest of these bugbear villages is ruled by the chieftain Stinking Glack. (laughs) That's an awesome name. He has been known to sell safe passage through the realm to some parties of adventurers, and he's also been known to lead those same adventuring parties directly into traps. So as a party, you pay half up front and you hold the other half back, whatever he charges. And the primary reason listed for going into this realm is to find bugbears as mercenaries, basically, to hire out bugbears to come with you to do a job. Okay. I mean, I like it, and I could see just bugbears, this much effort for a bugbear army, it doesn't sound like worth the effort, unless they're, like, highly specialized, maybe. Maybe you find, like, a super elite unit of bugbears or something like that, but this is, that's a lot of effort for a couple of bugbears to raid a castle or something. Like I don't that. think you would do this for a couple of bugbears. Yeah, I was going to say. You would be doing this for, like, 300 bugbears. Yeah. I mean, And this... just imagine how terrifying 300 bugbears that are actually obeying you would fair be. Point. Very fair point. Like I said, that's a lot of effort for armies you could find elsewhere, though, but yeah. Fair point. So that does a pretty good job of wrapping up Kokaitis. The third layer, Pandemonium, is Phlegathon. Phlegathon. That's a, that's just fun to say. It is. That's up there with Bulbous Bufont. Bulbous Bufont. Phlegathon. <laughs> Mucklek Macadamia. Bulbous Bufont. Phlegathon, again, coming back to our classical lore as we travel through things. Phlegathon was actually one of the other rivers, one of the five in the underworld or Hades in Greek and classical mythology. So Virgil's Aeneid, Tartarus Greek mythology, Roman mythology. And as we stand now, we have three of the five. We have Styx, we have Phlegathon, we have Cocytus. The other one being Leith, which is not here, unfortunately. And I forget the name of the fifth river. But again, we're still getting that real strong tie to some good classical lore, which is a lot of fun. So Phlegathon is a place of deep darkness and dripping water. The stone of the layer doesn't leach all warmth, but it does absorb radiant heat and light. So if you light a fire and are able to keep it lit, the stone around you is going to suck all the heat from your fire. You're not going to actually get any heat off of it. Oh, that sucks. 
and all lanterns and magical light only shine half as bright. And everything is cold. And everything is cold. Unlike the other layers of pandemonium, in Phlegathon, all gravity is oriented in one direction. So it does have normal gravity by, you know, material plane standards. That does help. So this place is like if you've ever been stuck in the snow or like, I don't know. So I hate snow. And one of the reasons is growing up, I was in New Jersey when a blizzard came through and I did not have proper snow clothes. I had like regular tennis shoes and jeans out in the snow doing kid stuff and my clothes got completely soaked. So I had these wet frozen socks. I mean, they weren't frozen, but they were definitely cold. My skin was clammy and my jeans soaked up all that snow water. So they were cold. So I was just like encased in cold, wet clothing. And that's what this place is. (laughs) Yeah. I grew up on a farm. And let me tell you, snow loses its appeal real quick whenever you have to trudge through it twice a day to bring food and water to everything. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, it's not great. So yeah, this is the plane of cold, wet socks. Yeah, that's about it. So because the gravity is all oriented in one direction on this layer, it gives rise to these massive stalactite and stalagmite structures and these huge curtains of stone with these different striated colors. And despite the evil tinge of the entire plane, this is a great place to go for some sightseeing. I could see that. Like I said before, you know, I've been through a lot of crystal caverns. And if you've not had the opportunity, you can find some pretty cool pictures online. I'm pretty sure some places have virtual tours you can do. And really, they can be absolutely mind-blowingly gorgeous. Kind of creepy sometimes. Again, the sounds can play tricks with your mind. It's dark. It's echoey. But again, visually just Mm -hmm. So this layer is rumored to be the home of some massive ferocious creatures. So things like blind albino cave wolves that are as big as buffalo. Giant crayfish. So I'm thinking along the lines of chul. Okay. The lobstrosities. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Monstrous slimes and puddings. Awesome. So I'm thinking the bone ooze from third edition. Okay. Some of my favorites. Bone oozes are absolutely terrifying if they managed to engulf you they had a dc 35 fort save or they rip all the bones out of your body and you instantly die Ta-da! <laughs> yeah it's a dc 35 fort save or die oh wow mechanic. that's called the gg monster yeah they were i think a cr 21 they were absolutely terrifying and i love them there are even reports of massive dragon layers on this layer of pandemonium that would put any material dragon's layer to shame. And again, that goes back to the lore that the, a lot of these caverns are just filled with an absolutely stupid amount of treasure. And there is also a specific type of dragon native to pandemonium that we're going to get to in a little bit at the end, where we talk about the different creatures that you can find here. So excited. So here's your town. Here's your Menzo Baranzan, Menzo Baranzan, however we pronounce it now, your analog for that. Okay. This town is called Windglum, and it is a town comprised of the banished. Okay. It is ruled by a Lord Wilfin Strabiel. His madness is that he faints without warning. Nice. He is a bard, and a bard who has actually traveled to other planes. So he was born here as one of the banished in Pandemonium, and was able to leave, and he went to the other planes. And while he was traveling, he sang a particularly body and offensive song about this sorceress who banished him 
unknowingly back to his home plane of pandemonium. <laughs> Don't throw me in the briar patch. <laughs> and he took this as an omen, as a sign. And so he went back to his hometown of Windglum and he led a popular uprising over the ruler of the city at that time and established himself as the ruler of the city. And his whole goal here is to establish Windglum as a city of equal importance to Sigil. That is ambitious. Everyone but the Windglummers, everyone but the people who live in this town know that it's an absolutely ridiculous idea. Which I would say almost would be one of the madness traits yeah. for the wind is they're, they're all delusional. But the wind glummers chalk up all of this criticism to sour grapes. Okay. So the town itself is built within a cave that has five very small tunnels that come into it and they're all walled off and gated. The town is constantly illuminated by hundreds of these little magical orbs of light that were enchanted and placed whenever the town was created. At the center of the town is this structure called the Citadel of Lords, which is where the ruling family and the center of government happen to be. Okay. And the streets radiate out from the Citadel. It doesn't specify how they radiate out, but I would say they radiate out one directly to each of the five entrances. That's how I would do it anyway. And then you have these cross streets that cut between them that follow the contours of the cave. I like that. So with these streets, I'm kind of thinking, because again, we can do these madnesses, right? So what if like one of the city's planners was just completely obsessive and everything had to be like perfect 90 degrees, everything had to be exact and pristine. And so it's that extreme, you know, people use the term OCD, which isn't correct, but it's that extreme fastidiousness. Everything had to be perfectionism to the absolute extreme on city design. I could see that. Or that the city was initially built by individuals of a lawful nature. Yeah. Who were able to withstand the chaotic effects of the layer long enough to at least get the city built. Okay. Yeah. I like that too. But that's about where the order ends with the citadel in the middle and the streets running out. So you've got the rest of the buildings in the town are just thrown up wherever the owners happen to want to put them. So you end up having hovels built next to mansions. You have bathhouses next to abattoirs. You have temples next to gambling dens and even buildings that straddle the street. I like it. That makes perfect sense for the city planner. And again, he, he laid everything out and then people just like, meh. <laughs> mm -hmm. But by Royal decree, no street may be blocked or diverted. Okay. So that's the only rule. You can't block the street, so you can't build a house in the middle of the street, and you can't move where the streets are. Okay. So you have to build around the streets, but as long as you can build around the streets without blocking anything off, it's fair game. I like it. And one of the other things that is noted is that each adult within the town is required to maintain proficiency with a weapon, which they have to certify once a year that they are maintaining their proficiency with this weapon so that they can be called up into the militia should the town come under attack. It's a very Swiss feel to it. Yes. And the residents of this town are super xenophobic. If you aren't one of the banished, if you're not from here, they're not real keen on you. Which again, kind of clashes with the idea that they want to make a city of portals like Sigil. But again, 
that comes back to that whole the town doesn't the mayor or the ruler of the town does gotcha and he is constantly going about being his you know diplomatic high charisma bard self trying to preach tolerance and get everybody on board with well, his I mean, great big idea even still i could see perfectly why that makes this such a preposterous idea because we hate outsiders we're gonna make a hub of outsiders we hate outside wait what <laughs> yeah but there is one location within the town called the Scaly Dog Inn. It was built by an adventurer who, for whatever reason, decided to retire here. He bought his way into town with this huge cache of spoils that he earned over the course of his adventuring career. And he bought this plot of land and built this inn, which now spreads into a total of three buildings. It's kind of odd in its whole construction, but because the person who runs the inn was an adventurer who came to the town, this is the place where you can go for a somewhat friendly face, some place that is actually going to serve you if you are coming in from out of town. No, no, I totally see how this works where you talked about where it spreads out into three other buildings. Have you ever been to like one of those really big truck stops? Where they've oh, yeah. got like the main truck stop, oh, yeah. and then you've got like the subway and the McDonald's, and then you've got the word visitor centers, and then you have that whole like shower or restroom area that's kind of off to the side on its own, but it kind of like intersects all of those at once. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I have a map of this place in one of the books. So, yeah, I can is it totally actually... like Night or Loves. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of. <laughs> Basically, what happened was the inn was doing well enough that he was able to buy the adjoining buildings and he just knocked down the wall and expanded okay. into them. Gotcha. So, yeah, that's exactly how it went. All right. So, that takes care of Windglum. Another notable location within this layer from third edition, it wasn't present in second edition, is called the Citadel of Slaughter. This is the home realm of Erythnal, who is an intermediate god of envy, malice, panic, ugliness, and slaughter. Oh. He is a chaotic evil war and death god, I think. So the winding passages all around this crumbling citadel at the center, they're all filled with these battle-mad petitioners from all different races. And so Erythnal stands at a coliseum, basically, at the center of this citadel. And is just constantly fighting wave after wave after wave of petitioners that are just coming and throwing themselves against him in battle rage. Okay. And his form is constantly shifting between that of a human, a knoll, a bugbear, an ogre, and a troll. Kind of creepy, but I can follow that, yeah. And if he is ever wounded, his blood forms into another creature that is of the same creature type same form of whatever form he was in whenever he was wounded and it just gets up and starts fighting alongside him arterial blood spray becomes terrifying now oh my god <laughs> so no one comes here willingly unless they seeking to join his eternal slaughter that is the note gotcha so going back real quick to the scaled dog for the patron of that inn, i was thinking because i mean this is a weird place that you'd actually like seek out and want to stay here but then Maybe that's his madness. Maybe his madness is he finds the winds calming and the silence is what bothers him. So anywhere else where the wind isn't is what puts him on edge because his madness is he finds those winds to be normal or soothing, perhaps. I could see that because it didn't have a madness listed for him. Right. So I could see that being an, an interesting quirk to throw on him. 
And now the final location within Phlegathon from second edition. This is where the Unseelie Court happens to be. So yes, the Unseelie Fey Court, home of the Queen of Air and Darkness, the counterpart to Queen Titania and the Summer Court or Seelie Court. This is where they are. Really, this makes a lot of sense because the Queen of Air, which would be the winds and darkness, because there's very little light here. I mean, really, it makes perfect. And not sense. just that there's very little light here, but because the stone actively drinks the light. Yep. So yeah, it is very appropriate that this is where they're setting up shop. So at the center of her realm, there's a huge cave, hundreds of feet high, and filled with these stalactites and stalagmites of the blackest stone, as it's described. And at the center is a single mountainous stalagmite topped with an onyx throne that bears the black diamond, which is the gem that corrupted the queen and set her on the course to destroy the Seelie Court and her sister Titania. Now, this is in second edition. So was the black diamond shattered sometime between there and third edition, I suppose? Because the Uh, black diamond is broken, is it not? I'm wanting to say that the black diamond is... If it was broken, that that happens somewhere in 4th edition. That makes sense. Also, it really makes sense for this to be the realm of the Unseedly Court and the Winter Queen. Because again, she is largely, I mean, chaotic because of Faye. But just that slight little, eh, maybe evil? Not quite outright horrible, but maybe just a smidge? (laughs) She's a bit more evil in 2nd edition than she is elsewhere in lore. Right. But what I'm saying is even in other lords, there's that hint where it's like kind of evil, not outright evil, but just a smidge. (laughs) Yeah, so her throne is surrounded by undead and corrupted fey, including more than one lich. Oh my. So the outlying areas of her realms are patrolled by her preferred beasts, which are yethhounds and hellhounds. And any visitor is judged for their usefulness in her campaign against the Seelie Court. If they are deemed useful, they are subjugated by the Queen of Air and Darkness and added to her ever-growing army. And if they are not, they are destroyed or saved for use in some foul magical experiment. That's pragmatic. I like it. So yeah, so that's the second edition Unseelie Court here within Phlegathon. Okay. Moving on to the final layer, Agathian. This one doesn't have nearly as much. The last layers of all of these planes tend to not be as fleshed out. They're intentionally hard to get to, hard to navigate, hard to utilize. You're not supposed to get there in a lot of cases. We're not saying the writers ran out of steam, but they're at the end. <laughs> but so unlike other layers, there are no tunnels through Agathian. Instead, each of the chambers are like these bubbles within the stone. And sometimes the bubbles are close enough together that they'll form a barrier between them. And then when that barrier opens, it will create this cyclone that is capable of lifting up to 500 pounds and just carrying it away. Okay. And eventually just dashing it against the stone. So it's kind of like blasting open an airlock? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. So so stay away from her, you bitch, and then you just like kick open the... So bubbles that don't have a barrier between it and another bubble are completely still. Half of them are filled with stale air and half of them are vacuums. Okay. So yeah, I'm totally getting the whole airlock thing. Yes. Uh, Well, the scene and the original scene and the original Total Recall, 
where he takes off the mask and it's a bomb and he blows open the side wall and everybody's getting sucked out into the Martian atmosphere. Because, I mean, really, if you're creating a giant bubble in stone, you have to think, how much pressure is that actually, you know? I mean, that's uh, quite a thought. Yeah, absolutely. So as we mentioned a little bit earlier, the various powers, which would be the gods and godlike entities, use these bubbles that don't have barriers as vaults, using them to store the things that they don't want to be found or stolen. So things like world-changing artifacts, precious mementos, lost languages, unborn cosmologies, interesting, or fearsome monsters on par with the Tarrasque or worse that couldn't be slain or otherwise neutralized. This kind of reminds me of Demon Reach and the Harry Dresden Files. Yes. Where he has that cave and he has everybody locked under crystals. Yeah, this definitely kind of feels like that right there. Yeah. And generally speaking, if a god has access to one of these bubbles... It uses it to store all of these things. It stores everything in the same location. Oh my. Just to make things extra dangerous for people who want to go and steal something. So you might want to get this artifact that this god happens to have stored away here, but they also have a Tarrasque. That's awesome. So do your scouting first. (laughs) Yes. And generally speaking, if you don't know where the portal to the bubble is, or the coordinates to teleport to get to the bubble, both of which would be tightly guarded by the deity who happens to own the bubble, they're next to impossible to get to. Okay. That is built into the mechanics, which is part of the reason why it's not really a place that you go. And we've we've talked a bit in the past with the talk of the Chaos War. Miska the Wolf Spider was banished when the Wind Dukes broke the rod of law which became the rod of seven parts to one of these bubbles here in agathian and the key to get miska out is to find all seven parts of the rod of seven parts and reassemble the rod which is why the rod as a built-in magical function of itself discourages the parts actually coming together. That's why the parts will mysteriously vanish of their own accord. But because they are all part of a whole, if you have one of the parts, you can sense where the other parts are. So that's kind of a countermeasure that was built into it. And again, this leads itself to a great evil run campaign. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, that's basically all four layers of pandemonium right there. Now, the one thing I did want to bring out is, like I said, I love the way they kind of sprinkled the lore, Easter eggs, if you want to call them such, throughout this. But the one thing that really struck me is, do you still have the general picture or diagrams of the maps of the seven layers of, of Pantheon? Do you have that by you by any chance? Those that are listening, if you get a chance to kind of look this up, look at it. And when I saw this, I immediately saw it looks like a cross-section diagram of the bones with the osteoclasts and the osteocytes and the tunnels that run through all the bones. And it really looks like the diagram of a living or autopsy bone section. How weird would it be if pandemonium is the bones of some long lost deity creature or something like that would be just one of those things I really want to take my mind and somehow Take that and run with it. Oh, I could. Yeah, that would be interesting. That would definitely be a fun twist to put on it. That would be epic level campaign sort of fodder. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I saw that. I'm like, that looks exactly like a bone diagram. Holy crap. (laughs) Yeah, I can see that now that you point that out. All right. There are a few creatures that are native to pandemonium that I'm going to touch on here. First one are howlers. 
I know Howlers made it into third edition. I'm not sure if they've made it into fifth edition or not. I don't recall seeing them, but there's a lot that I haven't seen. So, But they're these oxen-sized beasts. They've got this sort of red scaly skin with this coarse hair over top of it and these spines that sort of flare out around their necks. So kind of like porcupine spines. I like it. And they're called howlers because naturally they howl. And their howl serves as automatically triggering a save against Pandemonium's wind madness. Ooh. And it can cut through the wind and be heard up to 120 feet away. Which, again, is kind of terrifying in its own right. I mean, coming back into American history and lore, the concept of the old rebel yell. Which, I mean, was just basically a bunch of people yelling and hollering at you and stuff. But one of those things I never really appreciated till I actually moved to Tennessee where the trees and the woods and the undergrowth is so dense and how absolutely terrifying it would be to be in absolute quiet because you knew if these people were there, they were waiting for an ambush. So they weren't making a bunch of noise. And you step through, you can't see much in front of you just because there's so much stuff. And then you step out into a clearing and you just hear all of this yelling just surrounding you from everywhere. And I could totally see that with these howlers would be absolutely just like completely unsettling. Yeah. And same concept with like a war cry with the Native American war bands. Yes. It's that sudden cacophony that just disorients you. It's almost like, you know, the modern flashbangs kind of work in the same vein where it's to such a sudden shift and change. Your body can't react to it suddenly. It does stun right. you. But continuing on, the howl can't push a creature past hysteria. Can't push a creature past rank three. So that you can't reach resignation off of a howler. Though if a howler pushes more than two people in the party into hysteria, it's going to wreck some stuff. Oh yes, it's going to be, it's not going to be good times at all. Luckily, they're fairly low CR. They were only like 800 some XP a piece. So whenever they engage in combat with something, they can bristle out their spines to increase their armor. So it basically acts as a shield. So you you would get a, a plus two bonus to your AC. I like it. And when they, they hit with a bite attack... They also have a chance to hit with 1d4 quills, each of which deals 1d4 damage. And then you have to succeed on a saving throw versus each quill that hits you, or it gets stuck in you. Ew. And you take a minus one penalty on attack rolls per quill stuck in you, and it takes 1d6 rounds to remove a quill, and you take 1d3 points of damage when it comes out. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. That's a good bit of ouch. I'm thinking of uh, Chance from... Yes. Uh, what was that Homeward movie? Bound. Yes, where he gets the face full of porcupine quills. <laughs> yes. And the thing about Howlers is that they hunt in packs of two to up to 20. Okay. We need to remember this next time we do a, a roll a monster and something's de- uh, defended with spines or quills. Because this is yeah. a great mechanic. I love this. Yes. All right, so the next thing on the list are called Murskas. These things are terrifying. They are absolutely terrifying. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay, so they are skin-stealing sentient beetles. Uh, What they do is they will get a hold of you, they will latch on, and they will eviscerate you with their mandibles. And once you're dead, they will suck out your insides and wear your skin. It puts the lotion on the skin. I think... In the early 2000s, I forget exactly when, but there was a really crappy horror film, but it was called Mimic. And it was about a bunch of like six foot long slash tall cockroaches that learned how to mimic people. 
But yeah, that's kind of like these, but done correctly. Yeah. <laughs> or these were done correctly, uh, rather. So once it eats, it molts and assumes a grotesque mockery of the form of the creature that it just ate. Yeah, so again, I'm seeing that whole mimic feel with this, which again, it's spoopy season, so not a bad move yeah. to throw on for a fun bit. Yeah, so one of the examples that it gave was if it ate a horse, whenever it molted, it would take on the coloring of the horse. So if it was like a dappled gray color to its shell, and then it would have this big fleshy growth off the front that looks kind of like a swollen, distorted head and neck of a horse. Okay. It's just absolute nightmare fuel. Oh, you know who this is? This is Edgar from Men in Black. Holy crap. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> that is exactly what this is. So they are never met as single opponents. They are always met in groups of three or four, which just further adds to the terror of all that. Yeah, because I mean, just one of these by itself, because we're getting some of the fun stuff here up here. So uh, going off of second edition numbers, when it latches onto a creature with its mandibles, it deals 2d12 damage. And its victims are restrained, so they can't use weapons, they can't cast spells, they are fully restrained by this creature. And it just automatically gets to deal another 2d6 damage with its mandibles every single turn that it keeps you restrained. So the one thing that you can do on your turn is make a strength check as a full round action to try and pry the mandibles open and get yourself out. And in doing so, you will, success or failure... Take another 2d12 damage. Yeah, that's just, that is bad. Like, if you if you roll four of these things, you could easily TPK a party. Easily. And they're moderately high challenge rating. They're worth like 8,000 experience points, which would be somewhere in the CR 6 to 7 range. Yeah, I don't know. Because again, if you get a group of these things, 6 to 7 each. So, I mean, yeah, to deal with a group of these, that'll be like your one big encounter for your party for that rest session because... Yeah, you're looking at, at a... These are going to wreck your day. <laughs> the, yeah, this would be like a CR 12, 13 encounter if you had four of them. Yeah. Especially if you only have a four-person party. Absolutely. But yeah, so that takes care of that Nightmare Fuel. Another thing that you find here are the Dark Weavers. We covered them a little bit when we were talking about Limbo. These are evil, chaotic shadow spiders. They're basically Shelob from Lord of the Rings that can teleport. So they can cast Confusion, Sleep, or Suggestion each turn at will. Now, my issue with these here, this, and again, because they're found everywhere, but like things like Confusion, Suggestion, and possibly even Sleep, because we are in Limbo and those mental affecting spells are not going to be near as effective or not work at all. We're in Pandemonium. Yeah, Pandemonium. I'm sorry. So those effects are not going to be near as terrifying as they would be somewhere else as in Limbo. Not that, you know, a giant shadow spider needs a whole lot extra to be terrifying, but there you go. Right. And they are found elsewhere. They are also found in the Abyss and in Limbo. So they're not exclusively found in Pandemonium. But Pandemonium is where they are native. Okay. And while within darkness or shadow, they can become invisible. They can create two to five mirror images. That's terrifying. Or teleport up to 200 feet to more shadow or darkness. So they can basically shadow step 200 feet. Just because. Yep. But they are repelled by magical light. Fairy fire is your friend. <laughs> uh, just the light cantrip. Yeah. The light cantrip will be enough to repel them. Granted. Powerful magical light like sunbeam, sunburst, continual light 
daylight, they are enough to destroy dark weaver webs and they will deal extra damage to the spiders. Okay, I, c- I can see that, yeah. So, yeah, they're basically Shelob. Right, and then the last thing I wanted to cover, I broke out the Draconomicon from 3rd edition and found a creature native to Pandemonium called the Howling Dragon. Because how did this thing get forgotten? Maybe it got stuck in one of those bubbles. <laughs> so they have sort of a purplish tint to them, and they've got this wild flared fringe around the back of their head kind of like the uh what are they the from jurassic park the ones that had the frill that oh the dilophosaurus yes yes basilisk lizards okay i love those things yeah so it's kind of like that only it looks more like individual tendrils as opposed to an actual flare okay and they look like they have blood red eyes so like that albino eye look okay these are terrifying Oh, it gets better. So they have, their breath weapon has, there's two types. There's a cone of a howling sound that deals sonic damage, or a cone of maddening whales, which will cause you to roll a save against the wind madness. But because this is third edition, instead of wind madness, you have to succeed on a fort save, or take one point of wisdom damage per age category of the dragon. Oh, ouch. So they start getting their breath weapon as an adult, adult i think okay so an adult would be one mature adult two up to a great worm where a great worm would deal seven points of wisdom damage holy crap yes they are not to be messed with and in addition they are immune to sonic damage because they're in pandemonium and surrounded by these crazy winds all the time and they have some really interesting at will spells that they can do They can do Tasha's Hideous Laughter. They can do Confusion, Phantasmal Killer, Insanity, Weird, all of those madness kind of spells. They get all of that. I like those, and those are terrifying outside of Pandemonium, but within Pandemonium, again, not quite so terrible. Though, again, making the Howling Wind saves or just the uh, negative will stat would be really rough. They also have damage reduction against magic in general and also law. Once it gets to the higher levels. Okay. So lawful aligned creatures deal less damage to them because they are creatures of chaos. I like it. These things are kind of awesome. They're terrifying, but kind of awesome. They are terrifying. Yes. Yeah. So that's just about it. Yeah. So this was a really fun deep dive. Definitely one of our deeper ones. Again, this was kind of, we had to break this one up into two parts just because there was so much to cover. Really, it's hard to imagine that this is one of the forgotten like I said, one of the outside things, we never even covered how much of this was covered in the 5th edition Dungeon Master Guide. One paragraph. That's what I was going to say. We probably got like four sentences. Someone said, oh, put a check mark and was done. But as you can tell, there is a lot you can do here. I probably wouldn't want to run a full campaign here in Pandemonium, but definitely like diving in and out, a lot you can do. A lot of color, a lot of flavor. Definitely something to keep your players kind of on their toes, something they don't see all the time. So definitely a place to visit. All right. I think that pretty well does it for Pandemonium. So thank you everyone for joining us for another week. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email at undercommontaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing our Shakespeare and Insult page a day calendar inspired roleplay prompts six days a week. They go up on the Twitter account and get cross-posted to the Instagram and Facebook accounts. 
at Undercommon Taste. We're also on Patreon, patreon.com slash Undercommon Taste. So if you would like to help support the show financially, please come over and consider becoming a patron. We also have a Discord open to all of our listeners. So if you want to join us on Discord and talk with us, please follow the link in the show notes. You can find our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Give us a rate and review. It helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. Thanks once again for listening, and we will see you next week in the Beastlands. Happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at Undercommon Taste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCT Homebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Undercommon Taste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmaryccrowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.